The first reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 43 and verses 1 to 9. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. And the second reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 48 and verses 30 to 35. These will be the exits of the city, beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long, the gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, St. Michael's. It's so great to be with you. I am so, was so excited when Guy emailed me and asked if I would come and share the word with you one Sunday. We are in a strange time, aren't we, globally? And I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C., from my house, where I am also sheltering in place. And I'm thinking of you guys and uh, praying for you in your own transition um, uh, that you're going through as a church. So it's great to be with you. Um, let's get right into the word. So I decided for this Sunday, this is Pentecost Sunday. So happy Pentecost Sunday, everyone. Uh, this Sunday is so important to who we are as a church. When we believe that the spirit has come and been given to us as a gift uh, that resides in us. So I thought this time during COVID, I've been thinking a lot about the names of God. And so I thought for us, we might look at one of the names of God. There's so much changing in our world right now. And I think meditating on who God is 
God's character, the fact that it is never changing. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think it's an encouraging thing to meditate on in this season. So I thought we might look at one of the names of God that's so important to us, especially on Pentecost Sunday. So we're going to be going all the way back to Ezekiel. And we're going to be looking at the name of God, Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shema. Now, many of you probably don't spend a lot of time in Ezekiel. We're probably going to be in a book you haven't read a whole lot of. And that's because Ezekiel is a book about a vision. Um, in Ezekiel, the people of God had been taken into exile. And we know that when they were taken into exile, it happened in stages. It started out, a big group were taken, and then over the years they went in stages. So the book of Ezekiel is written from exile, about 10 years into exile, and Ezekiel gets this vision of what's happening back home in Jerusalem. And what he sees is the temple being destroyed and the Spirit of God leaving the temple. So we, if we go back all the way to Ezekiel 10 and 11, we'll see this vision where the Spirit of God hovers over different parts of the temple. And, and if we were together, I'd show you a map of the temple. And, but as we know, there's the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, where the Spirit of God lived, where the Ark of the Covenant lived. And so in Ezekiel's vision, he sees the cherubim rising up in the Holy of Holies. And he sees the Spirit of God move out of the temple into the inner court, into the outer court. And then he sees the Spirit of God go out and hover over the mountain, he says, east of Jerusalem, which would have been the Mount of Olives. And so it's almost this image of God, who is the covenant God with the people of Israel. It's almost this image that God's spirit doesn't want to leave, you know, like a really good dinner party <laughs> when you don't want to leave the host's house because you're having such a great time. There's this, and you're, you know, you move stages across the house to get to the, finally to the door and say your goodbyes. Um, well, it's this image that God's spirit doesn't want to leave because God is a covenant keeping God. And the reason that, that Jerusalem is being destroyed and that the people of Israel are being taken captive is because of their idolatry. The people of God have not, not kept their covenant with God. And so God has allowed them to be taken into exile. And so the people of God are in exile and Ezekiel's crying out, Lord, what is going to happen? And he gets this vision of the spirit of God leaving. That would have been a very disturbing vision, right? This is bad news that Ezekiel has to go back and share with the people of Israel that God's spirit has left his house. And it's important for us to think about this image of the temple where God's spirit lives. It's hard for us to imagine because we're on the other side of the cross, so we know that God's Spirit lives in us. It's Pentecost Sunday. That's what we're celebrating. We know that God's Spirit is, is everywhere. God's omnipresent. But as we know in the, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God showed up to specific people at specific times, specific places. And the Spirit of God was, the presence of God was in the temple. It resided in the temple. So we know that if you wanted to see God, be near God, you traveled as you would on a feast day. You would go, come from miles and miles around as the people of God, and you would come to the temple to visit God. This was God's house. And again, this is hard for us to understand, but one other thing we need to understand is that there were many temples. It was a bit like supermarkets uh, in this period in the ancient Near East. There were lots of gods to worship, lots of gods available. If you didn't like, you know, Waitrose, you went down the street to M&S. And if you didn't find something on special at Tesco's, you went down the street to somewhere else, to Argos maybe. 
So there were options for people in terms of gods. And this was one of the things that the people of God were often mocked about was the fact that they worshiped one God, right? This was seen as, as foolishness to other cultures at the time, but that was what was supposed to make them distinct. So they didn't, they wouldn't go to one temple and worship one God. If that God didn't give them what they wanted or satisfy them, they, they were supposed to not go to another temple, as was the custom, and worship another God to just hedge their bets, right? To cover their, cover their, uh, their, their life in security. So they were meant to worship one God, which was Yahweh. Well, they had fallen into idol worship and they were worshiping other gods. And so God allows them to be taken into exile. And this is helpful for us to think about when we think about idolatry. It may seem very far from us in our culture today. We may think, oh, I've never worshiped a statue of a cow or I've never you know, worshiped images of other gods. But we do put other things before God. And I heard someone say once, think about what you're holding in your hands. If God were to take everything out of your hands, what would you be gripping the most tightly? What would you be gripping the the hardest? And they often say that's what we idolize. Maybe it's our finances, our material blessings. Maybe it's a relationship, a child, a friendship. Maybe it's a career or our reputation, our pride. What would we be holding so tightly that when God came to sort of ask for it to be surrendered, we'd still be gripping it. And that potentially is something that we are idolizing, that we are putting before God. There's also moments in our lives, like now where we're in this global crisis, where we go to lean on things besides God, where we sort of wonder, God, are you big enough to handle this financial instability I'm going through? God, are you big enough to handle the distance between myself and my family? Maybe I'm worried about some different generations and how they're going to deal with this health crisis. God, are you big enough to handle my calling, my ministry, whatever it is I feel called to? And it's when we ask these questions and when we decide God is not big enough and something else is more trustworthy. That's another form of of idolizing. So here we have the people of God and they they have worshiped these other idols. And so Ezekiel sees this terrible vision of the spirit of God leaving his house. And so we come and we jump forward to Ezekiel. And that was a scripture that we would have seen read the Ezekiel, um, in chapter 43. We see that the spirit of God promises to return to the temple. So all the way through Ezekiel, the same vision is continuing, but we see the good news comes at the end, which is that God's spirit will return to his temple, a promise that God will come back, that the house will will then be called, the Lord is there. Jehovah Shema, as it says in the Hebrew, the house will again be called, the Lord is there. This is a part of who God's character is. His presence is there. His presence will be there. Kind of like if we're going to a friend's house, we say, I'm going to, you know, John's house. This is where John lives. I think about this in terms of my grandmother. My grandmother lived in Oklahoma, and whenever we would visit her for Christmas or on other holidays, she lived in this beautiful house. It was like a Harry Potter house. It had lots of levels, and as a kid, lots of places to hide. Hide and seek was was perfect in this house, and the house always smelled like fresh bacon. (laughs) Grandma was from the South and she cooked a lot of bacon and it smelled amazing. And maybe you have some, 
some images of that smell in your own grandmother's house of roast dinners and things. Um, but whenever I went to grandma's house as a child, grandma was always there. There was this sense that if I went there, I would find grandma. And grandma, the place, and her presence were synonymous. And that's a little bit like what the people of God would have felt about the temple and the Lord. That the temple was the Lord and, and vice versa. And so this image that God leaves is traumatizing, but then this beautiful promise that God was coming back. Now they're given this promise that God is returning while they're in exile. And what's important to know is that they would continue to be in exile. They're not leaving right away. And even as they receive this promise that God is returning, it's not because they've started behaving faithfully, because we know that even in exile, they were worshiping other gods. And so it's this amazing picture of the grace of God, which we know is, is unchanging. God is ever gracious, ever ready to show us his grace. And so even in exile, as the people of God are being disobedient, he promises to return. He promises again to be their Jehovah Shema, that the Lord will again reside in his house. So we have this promise given to the people of Israel. And we know, as I said, that they will continue in captivity. They wouldn't be leaving right away. And in fact, I think they're given this hope to be able to withstand this period of captivity. Much like now, we're going through a very strange season in this global crisis. And I think God would want us to, to hope in him, to remember that we are a people of hope, that when we live in Christ and when, when we become the temple of God, when the spirit of God comes to reside in us, we, we become people of hope. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory right? So it's this image of hope. This, this is not your home, God is saying to them. You will not always be in exile. There, don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable even in what feels good and when you're flourishing, but also don't get too comfortable in your suffering. Don't get too comfortable. Sometimes we can, we can sort of stew in our own despair. Don't get too comfortable even in your despair. I want you to live in hope. One of the times I, I'd seen this most clearly was when I went to Northern Kenya. So in seminary, uh, in about 2003, I went to Northern Kenya to a refugee camp called Kakuma. It was a refugee camp on the border of the Sudan, where many of the southern, southern Sudanese, the Dinka people, had fled into Kenya. They'd been living at this refugee camp for 10 or 12 years, and yet life continued there. They were living as, as refugees, as exiles from their own homeland, but they had seminaries, and they were ordaining people, and they were there in the thousands, uh, this new generation of Christians. Many of them were first-generation Christians in this particular tribe. And I went there to teach at the seminary and to, um, to work with an Anglican priest that I was friends with. And I remember as I went there and they were, they had a church of several, several thousand, maybe 10, 15,000 people. And as I said, they lived there for 10 or 15 years already. But everyone I met, the first thing they would say to me is, oh, Aaron, you must come to the Sudan. You must come see my land. It's a beautiful land. You must come meet my cows. They were a, a people who raised cows. That was part of their, their culture and part of their economy. And so they would be so proud of their cows. They would say, Aaron, you must come see my cows. You must come see my land. Now, they didn't know that sitting here in 2020, there would be a Sudan again, and they would have returned to their land. At this point, they had no idea when they'd be returning. But they weren't a people that, but they were people living in hope a people that, that lived as if they knew that even tomorrow they might return to their land. 
They knew that this was not their land, this refugee camp, Kenya. They were continuing to live and they were continuing to build the kingdom of God where they were, but they knew that this was not there forever. And I think about them often when I think about the people of Israel in exile and how this is the image of what God, would, how God would want us to live as a people of hope. Paul talks about this so much in his different letters. He talks about how, you know, the discipline, the challenge of following Jesus is how can we keep our minds set on things above, not on things of the earth? Because the things we see are passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I don't know about you, but that feels so relevant to me in this season. Looking at my phone, looking at the internet, watching the, the cases grow of this coronavirus, even globally, watching family being uh, mourning other friends, watching the way it's affecting our culture. It, it can really wrap me up in the things that are seen. And I can forget to meditate on the things that are unseen, which are just as real. God's reality of hope and redemption, his plan is still in action, even though we may feel a people in exile. We may feel a people in a strange land. He would want us to focus on the hope that we have in him. So we know that, that God's temple was promised, his presence was promised to return to his temple. And we know that the people of God would rebuild his temple. Uh, Nehemiah would be a part of that as well as we know. But we know that the people of God would never feel that the temple was as glorious as the one before. We know that God's presence wouldn't return for hundreds of years. And the last time we would hear this promise spoken of about the temple was in Malachi 3.1, where again it says God's messenger will return to his temple. So the people of God are left for hundreds of years with a promise that God was returning. And they held that in their hearts, didn't they? They knew God would return to his temple. And of course, they pictured a physical temple. But as we know, God's presence would come in the shape of a Palestinian man. We know that God's presence would come again in the shape of this carpenter. This carpenter would come, and as we know in John, the presence of God would come to visit his people again, but the people of God would not recognize him as that. We know from John 1 that the word came and dwelt among them, and that word dwelt in the Greek means tabernacled. It's a verb. He came and made his home among them. As the message version says, God came and he moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled. He was templing among them, but they wouldn't recognize his presence as such. And so his disciples even would wonder, when is the presence of the temple being rebuilt? And Jesus was trying to tell them, I am the temple. I am the presence of God returning to be with my people, to tabernacle with my people. Well, then fast forward, we know from just a little over 10 days ago about the ascension. And we see Jesus is now the presence of God. He's recognized as that. But now he ascends. He goes away. And again, I can imagine the disciples thinking of their ancestors, thinking of all these years they've waited for the presence of God to return. This promise that he'd return to his temple. And here they see him leave again. And how heartbreaking must that have been for the disciples? The presence had been with them and now it's leaving again. We waited so long for the presence to come again to the tabernacle and the temple. And now God's leaving again. But Jesus said, right, that the reason he had to leave in John 15 was that he might leave his presence, that the spirit of God might reside with his people. A confusing message, as we know, for the disciples. What did that mean? Who is this counselor who is coming? And then here we are. Pentecost Sunday, and we see the fulfillment of the promises of God, that the Spirit of God came to his people to dwell with them. 
And now, who is the temple of God? Where is this temple? Where is this presence? We are. We are the temple of God. As Paul says, you are the temple. You are the one that God resides in today. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God resides in your flesh and thus we live this holy life towards God by the power of the Holy Spirit who bears that life within us as his temple. And at, now that we've arrived at present day, I think it's helpful for us to have that background of Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Well, now the Lord is there, is with us. A reality I think we often take for granted on this side of the cross, that the Lord is there. The reality of God's name is true for us in our physical bodies. Wherever we go, the presence of God goes with us. And I often think, I've probably said this before to you, but I often think this must be so surprising to someone like Moses. You know, when I get to, to heaven, I would love to talk to Moses. And I think he would say to me, Aaron, the presence of God lives with you. That's amazing. You must talk to God all the time. You must be like a walking jukebox of worship because the presence of God is available to you 24-7. I don't have to visit a temple. I am the temple. I am the temple of God. What a beautiful picture of hope that we have. Another time that Jehovah Shema shows up in scripture, and I'll end with this, is Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You'll destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. When the psalmist says, as for me, it's good to be near God, that phrase be near God is the Jehovah Shema. It's good for me to be near the God who is there. And no matter how you feel in your present time situation, you may not feel that God is with you. You may feel that God is far. But the reality is if you are in Christ this morning, then God is with you. God is there with you. God is there with your family that may be hospitalized or suffering or having lost jobs. God is there with your children who may be far from you because of this crisis. God is there. Jehovah Shema is there. He is with us and we are that hope. We're that hope for our neighborhood. We're that hope for our country. So my prayer is that as we begin to open up, as the countries begin to, to change and the shape of what community looks like begins to change, that we would be sources of hope for people. That as we go, as we take the presence of God with us, as we change the atmosphere, as we enter it because Jesus is with us, may we be those who bring hope to our communities. May we be those who bring practical hope as well as, as prayerful spiritual hope, belief in the unseen, keeping our minds on things above, not just on what we see. May we be hope carriers and hope bearers, even as we bear the presence of God with us into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our conversations. It's been so great to be with you. I'll be thinking of you and praying for you. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.